I think nearly every policymaker and analyst who's worked on Afghanistan for 20 years, almost all of them should honestly be saying right now, we were wrong. Welcome to this new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Niels Kubis, and the quote you just heard was from Kate Bateman. Kate is a senior expert in the Afghanistan program of the United States Institute of Peace and previously worked for the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or in short, CIGAR. As you already hear, our episode this week again deals with the topic of Afghanistan and the role that corruption plays in the efforts there. And the interview that you're about to hear between Matthew Stevenson and Kate Bateman touches on a lot of very interesting points. I want to highlight one, namely the manifold reports on the lessons learned that hopefully help to avoid that the topic of corruption gets overlooked in peace efforts. We hope you enjoy the episode, and without further ado, here are Kate Bateman and Matthew Stevenson. This is Matthew Stevenson, and on today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Kate Bateman, who is currently a senior expert in the Afghanistan program at the United States Institute of Peace, and who previously served with the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction with the United States government. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matthew. It's good to be here. So before we get into uh, your work with uh, Seeger and on Afghanistan and so forth, it would be great if we could start out just learning a a little bit more about you and your background and what led you to your interests in this cluster of issues. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, I started in government on Capitol Hill, uh, working in the House of Representatives, and and then eventually ended up at the State Department, working on South Asia. And corruption was always a you know one of the governance issues that was kind of on the agenda of, um, for in our you know bilateral relationships with with many South Asian countries. But then I ended up in Kabul for a little over a year at the U.S. Embassy. And that was at the time of the Kabul bank scandal, which your listeners might be familiar with, a massive bank uh, case of bank fraud. And, and that really kind of shadowed the whole um, assistance relationship at that time in 2010, 2011, between the U.S. and the Afghan government. So that that was my first you know, big exposure to the way the way corruption was undermining U.S. stabilization and reconstruction and security efforts you know, in one of our major military deployments you know, around the world. And then I later went to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, as we call it, which is an oversight agency. And I worked in the Lessons Learned program there, uh, where our mission was is to produce long-form reports on different areas of the reconstruction mission. And we, by the nature, nature of our work is that we're often looking at corruption risks and both how the Afghan government engages in corrupt behavior, but but also what is the U.S. doing on our side to to try to address the problem? 
And now, and then recently I've uh, moved to the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, where I'm working on, well, we're, it's a new environment in Afghanistan now, of course, with the, the tragedy of what's just happened. So, um, but my efforts will be more focused on peace building. So um, I, I'm definitely interested in hearing more about your work with the Special Inspector General's office and the work of the, the office uh, more generally, not just your particular role in it. Could you tell me and our listeners a little bit more about the nature of that office and how it was structured, who it answered to, who funded it? What was its relationship, for example, with the United States military, with the Afghan government, with the United States Congress? Many people have, have heard, at least vaguely, of SIGAR, especially because it's been featured in much of the reporting since the fall of the Afghan government and the withdrawal of, of U.S. troops. A lot of the reporting is focused on corruption issues and, and mentioned the inspector general's office. But I think it would be helpful, uh, again, not only for our listeners, but also for me to understand a little bit more how this office operated. Where, where did it fit into the larger configuration of institutions and entities uh, in the Afghan environment? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. So Cigar was established in 2008. Um, it was modeled on a very similar agency, Sigir, uh, a similar agency for Iraq reconstruction. And it's it's independent. We exist, or Cigar exists, not under any other U.S. department. So there are actually about 72 different IGs or inspectors general offices um, in the U.S. government. The vast majority of them are existing or within other departments. So they're oversight agencies that conduct audits, investigations, and so on within a particular department. But in our case, we were set up by Congress. Um, our, our, our statutory mandate is, is that we exist as long as there is more than $250 million in the pipeline for Afghanistan reconstruction from any coming from any US agency. So we can look at US funds coming from any US government agency going to Afghanistan. And for what purpose we can look at it's re- reconstruction defined broadly as both building the Afghan army and police, uh, which has been or Afghan security forces, which has been the comp- that has comprised the majority of the dollar amount uh, that the U.S. has contributed to reconstruction, um, uh, nearly ninety billion dollars. Um, but overall, uh, the U.S. has. appropriated about 144, I believe that's the last count, about $144 billion uh, since 2002 to reconstruction Afghanistan. So roughly 90 billion of that for army and police security forces and the remainder for economic development, social, uh, social development, governance, rule of law, humanitarian assistance. So what was the relationship like between Sagar and the U.S. military leadership and others who are on the ground in Afghanistan? I would imagine that there are aspects of that relationship that would be very complementary and cooperative because there was a recognition uh, early on that corruption threatened the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Of course, we know how things turned out. That seemed to be right. But mm-hmm. I could imagine, maybe this is completely off, but I could imagine there's at least the possibility for tension or disharmony insofar as you know, one of the trade-offs or challenges in this situation is the United States was trying to support this government. There were corruption problems in the government. And I could imagine that it create, created some difficult situations if Cigar is 
publicizing the degree to which uh, the government that the U.S. is supporting is is uh, corrupt or that particular people who the U.S. government is trying to work with are corrupt. So, again, both for me and for our listeners, can you talk through a little bit how that relationship works between what you're doing with respect to the oversight of the funds and the both the military and civilian authorities in Afghanistan who are attempting to produce security and build up the, the government, ultimately, as we know, unsuccessfully? Mm-hmm. I should I should explain some more of the structure a bit of cigar. We we are based in um, Arlington, Virginia, um, not far not far from the Pentagon, but we also have a Kabul staff. So I say we. I, I'm formerly with Cigar, and I speak in a personal capacity right now with you. But uh, but Cigar has uh, had until very recently a Kabul office, and and that office had auditors as well as investigators. So um, so they have a, a law enforcement function as well. So to be clear, Cigar's function is not to look at the war fighting effort. We're, we're not, we're not, we don't have a mandate to look at uh, U.S. military forces in their combat roles or anything like that. It's just on the reconstruction side. But your point's well taken. Um, there have been several examples of audits that, that brought, to, brought to light some uncomfortable truths about what's happened to our assistance um, or uh, to failures on the U.S. side to do better accountability monitoring and oversight um, to account better for what we were providing to security forces. Uh, there have been, we've done reports, of a really important lessons learned report was on reconstructing the army and police. And, and it focused a lot on the, um, the lack of U.S. attention to institution building, defense institution building, um, that, you know, if you talk to a military analyst or historian, they will often tell you uh, logistics wins wars. And, um, and over the course of our, you know, long, uh, you know, nearly 20 years trying to, to develop a capable security force in the country, we really had an overemphasis on combat capability and not on, you know, the less sexy, the the more mundane aspects of human resources systems, um, supply chains, you know, ensuring that uh, ministers and deputy ministers of defense and interior are not selling ammunition or weapons or medicine on the black market and accounting for or, or uh, salary systems. You know, we, we came to those issues rather later in the game. And, and so one, that's one of, the, one of the problems that Cigar has highlighted. But I think, I mean, to go back to your question of the relationship, the relationship of any inspector general it, with the agencies, he or she is empowered to oversee is going to be inherently tense, uh, or I wouldn't say doesn't need to be adversarial, but of course there's a, there's a tension in, in the, in the objectives. Um, but we cooperate, you know, we work closely with the agencies. We have subpoena power, which don't believe we've ever used, but, but cigar issues, uh, data calls, we request uh, for our quarterly reports. We have a quarterly report that some of your listeners may, may know well that has exhaustively tracked the course of the reconstruction effort. It's a major source of information for researchers and and for other people in the U.S. government and and Afghan government. And every quarter, we request uh, data from State Department of Defense and USAID and other agencies, and and they respond. So 
I mean, it's a, I think a complex relationship, but there's a, an open channel of communication and we are, especially for the lessons learned reports, we were soliciting, you know, agencies views on what they wanted to, what they wanted to see us work on as well and, and how to scope those reports. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the lessons learned report. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that. And I also want to ask you just more broadly about lessons learned, especially from um, what happened within the last month. Again, the withdrawal of U.S. forces and the, I think, shockingly rapid collapse of, of the Afghanistan government, which I think that my understanding just as a consumer of newspapers is most people were not expecting the government to collapse quite that quickly. So one of the things that I've found interesting and puzzling and sort of frustrating about the way this all went down is that a lot of the reporting on what happened the last month, the collapse of the government, really emphasized the corruption of the government and corruption of the security forces as a major contributing factor, right? Both to the weaknesses of the security forces, you had soldiers and police who hadn't been paid, right? You had military equipment that had been sold off in the black market, something to which you just alluded, and also in terms of civilian support, Right, the corruption of the Afghan government and the various you know, warlords who were uh, you know, participating in U.S. security efforts really, my understanding, is alienated a lot of the population or at least made them less sympathetic to the Afghan government and the U.S.-led mission than it would have been otherwise. So all of that has been widely reported. What's been so, the, the source of the frustration or the puzzlement is that it's not like this was a new or surprising thing that people only paid attention to within the last few weeks. I mean, one people have been saying for years, and I, I want to ask this question to you in particular, because I would see these cigar reports, right? I'm sure there are, there are confidential ones as well, but there are public reports that your office would put out. And I must be on the email list or something like that, because I felt like with some frequency, I would get these reports. And senior military leaders were saying kind of all the right things years ago about the just what you said, right? Like, it's not just about war in the, you know, fighting the war in combat situations, the logistics, the supplies, the um, preventing the diversion of material in the black market. All of this stuff was known, right? It's not like it was a secret or surprise or a brand new thing. So so from your perspective, from where you sit or from where you sat involved with Cigar and, and having thought about these issues, do you have a sense of like what went wrong? What lessons should we learn? It didn't seem like it was a failure of knowledge in the sense that it, it came as a shock to people that corruption could undermine the mission in this way. But yet it still seems that in the end, uh, the changes that needed to be made weren't made. Why is that? You've made excellent points. There are a lot of questions embedded in, in that. I think to take one question of this, um, the surprise about the Afghan forces folding across, you know, in a matter of, I think it's three weeks that the Taliban went from controlling zero provinces and no provincial centers to controlling the entire country, essentially. There's, it's been really disheartening to hear some of the commentators in the U.S. just kind of, and even, you know, some members of government kind of point to, well, the Afghan forces must you know, are cowards or they're, you know, they're not, they have no will, they don't have the will to fight. That doesn't acknowledge that some 66,000 Afghans in the army and police have died in the last um, decade or so, or a little over a decade. So, you know, they have been injured and taking casualties in enormous numbers, somewhere around 30, 30 times the numbers of, of U.S. and coalition casualties. 
And so your your point about okay, where does corruption come in? It's certainly one of the reasons um, for the lack of for the low morale and and so on that led to their uh, to the collapse of those forces. But it's it's one of many. I mean, I'd say the failure of you probably heard a lot of police and army had not received their pay for months, weeks, or months. They they may not have had adequate food, water, ammunition, equipment. Um, who's going to go into combat with not enough, you know, no bullets in your guns? Um, they also, you know, there was a failure of leadership and some mismanagement at the at the command level and recent changes that Ghani, that President Ghani had had made. Um, it kind of there was some turmoil in senior leadership, and that contributed to confusion and and a poor chain of command on the ground. There was also, well, I, I think. Another key reason was the withdrawal of the 16,000 contractors who had been essentially um, enabling close air support and medevac for Afghan forces. Um, it wasn't it wasn't only the 2,500 U.S. soldiers, but also about 7,000 NATO forces and these 16,000 contractors who were taking care of the logistical side and technical side of air support. And air support was uh, was the Afghans' main tactical advantage over the Taliban. So this massive change in, in the you know, tactical environment over the course of the space of weeks, coupled with the psychological blow of seeing your, you know, Afghan forces had been fighting under this somewhat of a security umbrella, you know, provided by the U.S., by our surveillance, intelligence, and air support, medevac, and so on. And then to have that withdrawn, you know, was a huge blow to morale. And remember that I think a lot of Americans don't remember that Afghans themselves have been, uh, now fighters have been living in a wartime environment their whole lives, but older, you know, others have this war has gone on in some form or other for nearly half a century, and Afghans want to um, want to stay alive, <laughs> like uh, as anyone would. So, so the retreats and you know, retreating and surrendering and folding, you know, across these different provinces, like all those factors combined, I think, into a perfect storm. And the Taliban were they'd been ascendant for years, you know, uh, steadily gaining ground in rural areas, and then you just saw this collapse that was back to your question of why the failure on the U.S. side. I, I personally think is a massive you know, a failure of imagination, really. I mean, yes, maybe we had the knowledge and insight to have better foreseen this, and some people did foresee it. But I think it's maybe more a psychological phenomenon of our sunk costs. Our investment is so great to be able to come to grips with the to plan for a scenario where, oh, we withdraw, we're withdrawing our troops and within weeks the Taliban might be taking Kabul. Like that was just incomprehensible to many people. So I think maybe I wasn't clear in answering and asking the question. So let me see if I can uh, try to phrase it a little more clearly. So, so first of all, nothing in my question was intended to imply any disrespect for the Afghans people, especially the lower level people who, as you say, were fighting often very bravely in very difficult conditions. I was focused more on the issue of taking corruption seriously as a threat to the effectiveness of the Afghan security forces, as well as morale, right? The issues about people not being paid and not having food. A lot of the analysis that I've seen suggests that, you know, part of that is just the difficulties of war, but part of that is that things were being, as you suggested before, 
misdirected by the senior officials and commanders and sold in the black market, that people who are well connected to the government were making a fortune often. I mean, this is what Seagar was looking into, taking money that was supposed to be for reconstruction and keeping it for themselves, having privileged ac access to contracts, right? If you were connected to the right people, I think that the, the conventional wisdom, and feel free to correct me if I'm, in, if I'm wrong on this, the conventional wisdom is that there was massive corruption throughout the Afghan government. And that contributed significantly to the political and security failures that, again, unfolded maybe much more rapidly than anyone anticipated. What I meant to ask, like, what went wrong, it was less sort of generally what went wrong in the battlefield. And it was more like many people had issued this diagnosis years ago, right? People outside the government, I think Sarah Chase was the one who's most well known as an outsider who, you know, she, her whole book, her first book, this was the main theme, but also people in the government. So you had senior generals saying, we need to do something about corruption governance. This is going to undermine our mission. It's going to undermine the government. Uh, you had Cigar uh, or Cigar. I can't remember where to put the right emphasis on the, in, in your acronym, but the special inspector general constantly releasing these reports indicating the extent to which things were going wrong. So it's not like this was a secret, right? It was known that corruption in the Afghan government was extremely widespread. It was also widely believed before and now that this widespread corruption was going to undermine the political and security mission. And the puzzle that I'm struggling with, and I was hoping you could maybe offer some additional perspective on is, why was it that despite all of these warnings for years and years and years, it appears to an outside observer that insufficient action was taken to address that corruption? Now, maybe the answer is there is nothing that the US or others realistically could have done to get that corruption under control. It was just a fixed feature of the environment like Afghanistan's rocky terrain, which makes it very difficult to fight uh, against a uh, guerrilla force, but like there's nothing you can do to change it. But many people, again, I don't know because I'm not an expert in Afghanistan, many people believe that there were policy failures, that the US government and the US military and others failed to take the measures that would have been uh, necessary, but that could have been taken to not eliminate corruption from Afghanistan, that would be impossible, but to get this problem more under control. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm struggling with. And that's what I'm trying to, to get at. So again, from the perspective of the Special Inspector General, you guys were issuing these reports for years, right? And again, I didn't read all of them, but I read some of them or read about others, and they would report substantial corruption in the Afghan government. And a lot of analysts were saying this corruption, it's not just you know, moral bad, it's not just you know, bad for the economy, but this is gonna undermine the security mission and it's gonna undermine the legitimacy of that, the Afghan government. And from my outsider's perspective, it seems like in low it came to pass. So why were these warnings not heeded? Why was action not taken? Was there action that could have been taken that wasn't? That's what I'm really trying to get at. Okay, I think I'm gonna break down my answer into three parts. I think. To understand the answer to that is um, you have to look at when when did we really realize the magnitude of the problem and begin to do anything about it? What did we try to do in terms of anti-corruption and, and why did those efforts fail? So the when is important because there are some original sins here that, you know, that we've been struggling to catch up with, I think, right? without even going into the political side of, you know, the Taliban being shut out of, of bond, the bond agreement in 2001 and so on. But 
we made, you know, very early on, you have to, to put yourself back in the mines and like information level for, you know, early U.S. policymakers at that time, uh, 2001 to three, four, five, let's say, you had a, you know, a, compl- a decimated country, right? The humanitarian needs are ex- just extremely dire. There was, there had been a drought, a, a terrible drought for several years in Afghanistan. You had, I mean, people literally, you know, on the brink of starvation and um, lacking access to medicine. So there was a push to focus on humanitarian needs and really basic reconstruction first. Um, the road, you know, repairing roads and so on and improving, improving access to people. And, and there was, of course, the 9-11 was still raw and our complete security focus was on the counterterrorism mission. And I asked, I did an interview with General Barna once, who was commander of U.S. forces and NATO forces in, I believe, 2003 to five. And I asked him, so back in, you know, during your tenure, did anyone ever ask you, can you do direct some intelligence assets towards the Afghan government? Like these warlords were working with people and people in Afghans in government and the political economy of the country and where there might be real corruption risks. You know, he, I mean, he said, that's, that's just laughable. Of course not. I mean, I would, I would never have, it was, it's laughable to think of that um, having happened. The focus was, you know, the Afghan government was our partner, was our, we were seeking to provide them with some of the most basic capabilities. The now or previous uh, former president Ghani was then the minister of finance. And I've heard stories. He would, you knock on the door of the ministry of finance and he would come to the door. They were lacking desks and pencils and so on. So the needs are so, I think it's hard for us to imagine like how basic the needs were. And the focus was on getting assistance to, you know, filling those needs uh, as quickly as possible. Remember the, um, the resource, the resources were also lower, much lower, and the fo- the policy focus so quickly shifted to Iraq. People you know, often talk about that. There was not, I don't think you had a substantial part of the policymaking community in D.C. thinking about, well, how do we ensure, you know, effective governance in Afghanistan? No, it was like a back, it was the, we defeated the Taliban, we're done, we're moving on to the next thing. And then it was only the emergence of the insurgency, emergence in a more stark way by 2005 and six, that you had a focus back on Afghanistan. But then it wasn't until, I mean, there were high level DOD briefings on corruption and so on in, in 2006, seven in the Bush, during the Bush administration. But then it was not until 2009, 10, that you had uh, the Afghan threat finance cell was established. And that began looking at the complex web of financial relationships between drug traffickers, government officials, and the insurgency. And then you had the Warlord Inc. report that Jody mentioned on your podcast last month. And this was like a clarion call to you know, action. But ultimately, President Obama had just, he made his West Point speech saying, we're surging troops, and then we're transitioning, then we're leaving by two, in 2011. And the sense there was, there was already this kind of deadline on our FR intensive efforts, you know? So we had for two, three years, you had this focus on the task force Shafafiyat to better understand corruption and anti-corruption led by HR McMaster. You had task force 2010 to look at our contractor relationships, look at how are U.S. contractors contributing to, you know, paying protection 
rockets and so on. And how is money reaching the insert, funding the insurgency? You had um, the major crimes task force, a U.S. assistance and mentoring of Afghan units who were designed to go after um, corrupt actors. But at the same time, you know, we built up those task forces but at the same time, we were we were really looking at the exit. We were transitioning in 2014. We were we were returning responsibility for security to Afghan security forces. We were handing over the security mission to them, and you had this huge drawdown in U.S. kind of attention and money and personnel, and a lot of those shops simply closed or removed. Or, for instance, Task Force 2010, which had looked at corruption, um, it got a new director and and it began, and it was moved to Qatar, I believe, and it began looking more at force protection. We had to contract our ambitions and our efforts. So I think uh, that the other issue is just structural, that um, Kate Clark uh, has written very um, intelligently about this. Afghanistan had become a rentier state, you know, a state that's almost entirely dependent on donor funding. And you would think that gives donors a lot of leverage to make demands on, on the government, right? But as you have probably studied and dealt with, in reality, uh, it just doesn't play out that way. Um, and we, we had these mutual accountability frameworks where we set up anti-corruption goals for the Afghan government, right? In, in coordination with all, of, all these other donors, um, those frameworks had detailed lists of action items and they'd be renewed every two, three years. There'd be some new, the Tokyo Mutual Accountability Framework. The, it was renamed. And, and I think those made some incremental progress or drove some incremental progress on the Afghan government side. But ultimately, it's, I, I, the short answer to your question is, I think it's a generational effort to change these norms. And you need continued focus and a combination of you know, technical assistance, but also political focus. And those forms of pressure and conditionality and so on were not coming together in Afghanistan. And, and you're trying to do this in the midst of a war, when everyone knows at the end of the day, um, I think the US government kind of telegraphed to the Afghan Af- senior Afghan leaders that I think they realized that their political survival was and the stability of the Afghan government or the existence of the Afghan government was at the end of the day, most important to the U.S. And therefore, why are they going to, why are they going to respond to our demands to hold accountable, you know, senior government officials for corruption when they know we would, we don't have that many tools to actually pressure them to do so. Do you think that there was more? So there are a couple of different ways one could understand what you just said, which is all super interesting and helpful. One way to understand, especially that last piece of it, is there actually wasn't very much more the U.S. could realistically have done under the circumstances to try to promote integrity and fight corruption in the Afghan government, that it really was like the, the landscape or the geography for all intents and purposes. It was just like a fix. We could talk about it, but really there was no practical way for the U.S. government or anyone else to alter it in a meaningful way. Another way to understand what you just said is that uh, there were, in fact, things that the U.S. government could have done if it would have been willing to do it, but that it chose not to. In other words, there's an argument that the, another possible way to understand this is that there were incorrect decisions made at some point 
not to try to press this issue more or to make these conditions real or to do other things that could have gotten the problem under control. And I'd like to push you a little bit about which, which, which of those things is closer to your view on this. I mean, is it more like, look, we understand corruption, fighting corruption is bad. Corruption did undermine the Afghan government and security forces. It was a big problem. But the idea that the US, there was some set of policy tools the U.S. could have used beyond what it had already done to make a significant dent in this problem is just the fanciful idea concocted by armchair anti-corruption activists and analysts who don't really understand what's going on. The other view is actually there were significant mistakes made by U.S. policymakers in not putting this issue higher up on the priority list and recognizing just how important it would be and being willing to suffer some short-term pushback or losses or increased difficulties in order to actually press for significant improvement on this score in a way that could have actually shifted not just the governance situation, but through the governance situation, the security and political situation in a positive direction. So it might be a little bit unfair to try to pin you down on which of those is closer to your view, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like which of those is closer to your view? It's closer to my view that there were things we could have and should have done that we did not do. For instance, getting our own house in order to do better monitoring and evaluation of, and of just oversight and execution of uh, especially the security assistance. So we certainly could have put more resources into that critical monitoring evaluation on the assistance side, but we also at the political level, I mean, we might've, I think Sarah Chase has written about these kind of mapped out various tools, you know, diplomatic and intelligence and economic and so on. And we could have looked harder at things like revocation of visas investigations of dual citizens, stricter conditionality of funds. And I think there was this, now there was in some time, some, in some cases, you know, hesitancy to use those simply out of fear that they're going to backfire. And, and that's legitimate. Uh, one former ambassador pointed out to me that, well, when you have, when you try to like use, use those levers against individuals, you know, you can open an investigation against someone in government, in, in the Afghan government, let's say, but if they com- if they then comply with your request for X, Y, or Z reform, you can't just turn off the investigation, right? Or prosecution. I mean, there, some of these tools are very difficult to, they're not flexible. And then the conditionality of assistance, uh, that's another tough one because the development community is very um, has found that there's really little evidence to show that conditionality of a more transactional nature. Uh, there's little evidence to show that it works, especially in, in high conflict environments. Um, either because donors aren't willing to kind of follow through, because there might be security or political costs, or that the the host government just doesn't even have the capability to really respond to the condition. So I'd say, you know, there are these tools that we might have explored and used more robustly. And certainly we could have had a more unified voice between our civilian and military actors, officials on our side to be pressuring the Afghan government. And it's just really difficult to know, to, to play out the counterfactual. You know, if we had used those in a more rigid or forceful way, would the Afghan government have gotten its act together better? I mean, would it, 
it's impossible to know. And then what might have been the costs for us you know, of doing that? But the, what we point out in the corruption lessons learned report that Cigar published in 2016, um, which was the first lessons learned report, we point out that we didn't, we point out those ways that the US government might have taken more forceful steps. And, you know, the thing is, the Taliban have been ascendant, you know, remain a powerful force, have fed off grievances, again, and the erosion of public trust in the Afghan government. You know, that the US didn't take more of a risk in elevating the corruption issue at a, at a political level. Well, we'll never know if, if we had done that, might there have been greater reform or responsiveness on the Afghan government side? It, it, it's, difficult, it's difficult to know that counterfactual. I mean, the problem with trying to learn from history is that it only happens once, right? We can't run, the, we can't run it a thousand times with different policies and see what the outcomes are. Um, so we're stuck in this position of trying to take our best guesses based on what we, we've actually observed. I'm glad you brought up the Lessons Learned report. I'm hoping we can link to that in the show notes uh, available online. But let me use that as a jumping off point to ask a little bit more about um, lessons learned from this experience. So that original Lessons Learned report was from 2016. It's now five years later in 2021. Um, speaking not for CIGAR, not for the U.S. Institute of Peace, just for you, if you were to try to pull together the principal lessons learned from the experience in Afghanistan generally, or SIGAR in, in particular, uh, and try to summarize them going forward, because the Afghanistan mission is, is over, it ended in failure, but notwithstanding the shift in foreign policy, it's not like this is the last time something like this is going to come up. I, I suspect that either the United States or some other country or set of countries will at some point in the future find themselves in a situation where there's a challenging security problem, a conflict, whatever, uh, and the principal governmental partner has significant corruption problems, and there's a lot of assistance, donor assistance, government assistance, et cetera, going to that partner, with, uh, but there's serious concerns about the corruption risk. So again, it's, it's too big of, a que- uh, of an issue really for it to be a fair question for you to try to summarize in just a, f- a few sentences the, what the big lessons learned are that it probably should be another full report on this. But, um, but let me ask you anyway, if you were going to try to distill what you think are the most important lessons learned from this painful experience going forward, what might they be? In particular, the, uh, the focus, with the focus on governance and anti-corruption issues in these challenging situations. The first lesson is humility. Uh, I think... Nearly every policymaker, a U.S. policymaker and analyst who's worked on Afghanistan for 20 years, I mean, all, almost all of them should honestly be saying right now, we were wrong. We were wrong, we were wrong about a lot. And um, I think there's just uh, far too little willingness to criticize ourselves or, you know, call out our own assumption, our own mistaken assumptions. You know, we overestimated our own ability to, to affect change in a extraordinarily, you know, a very complex society that we had. You, you almost, it's hard to imagine a society you know, much different from, uh, at least on the outside, you know, from America. And I think we just understood the lo- local contexts and local political relationships and just history, you know, there's so, such a little understanding of history. And we also set unrealistic timelines for what we were trying to do rather than seeing some of our goals as, you know, slow 
processes that take a long-term effort, right? There's actually, I just want to pause to refer you to a, a new, the most recent lessons learned report is actually what, uh, what I think it's, I think the title is what do we need to learn? And it came out um, in August, just as a kind of 20 year overall retrospective, trying to distill some of the lessons from our various trying to distill the various lessons learned reports we've published, but, um, and it goes into some of these issues, but, um, but I personally, again, I think humility, the, uh, the need to understand local context better. And, and also um, in terms of from a government, from a governance and anti-corruption lens, I think sometimes in our anti-corruption efforts, there was this, there's an assumption that, well, Afghan culture is like this. You kind of, it's kind of, you know, the culture cop out. And that enabled a failure on our part to look at how we were contributing to it. So a key part of other stabilization or reconstruction missions should be looking at you know, how much money are we actually in putting into this country in terms of assistance. We went from a rather small budget for Afghanistan to too much, honestly. And that's been a theme of Cigar's work as well, that in many cases, smaller is better, and um, and the pre- the constant pressures to demonstrate progress by you know money spent became a proxy for demonstrating progress rather than actually measuring measuring indicators of progress on the ground. So there has to be some there has to be a change, and also our internal um, incentives for our people on the ground, you know, to not be rewarded for continuing a $50 million project if it's not working. You know, who gets re- rewarded for canceling a project if it's not working? It's not how our, you know, personnel systems work. Can I just pick up on a couple of aspects of what you just said, which is, again, super fascinating. We will try to include in the show notes links to the, the relevant reports. Uh, I want to I highlight two things that you just said, which are certainly not inconsistent, but I sense there's a possible tension between them. One thing that you said, which seems correct, is that at least when it comes to doing things like building up a government and suppressing corruption, promoting integrity and so forth, these are long-term efforts. It's not like you can overnight create a new government or take a government that's been mired in systemic corruption and clean it up. It's just not realistic to imagine that you could do something like that. It's a very long-term process. You take generations. Something you also said is that we need to be able to measure progress to show if the interventions that we're supporting are working and not rely on these crude proxies like the amount of money that you spent on the project, which also seems completely right. But I guess what measures can or should one use to assess good governance promoting projects that by their nature take a really long time to have an impact. And where often the impact is diffuse, right? You can do, if you set up a new agency, you can count number of investigations or number of prosecutions, people you put in jail or so forth. Um, I guess if you have expenditure tracking, you can track things like how much money do we think is stolen. But for the broader project, again, as you said before, it's it's long-term and diffuse. And yet there's a lot of pressure to show that the money that's being spent is being spent effectively. So, do you have any thoughts about 
better ways to do that assessment. And that connects to the other thing that I was going to ask about, which is really maybe a different uh, aspect of the same issue. You said, I think quite persuasively, we need to change the incentive systems for the people who are doing this work. Because it's all well and good to talk about in broad terms, the long-term process of transformation, et cetera. But ultimately, these are people who want to keep their jobs. They want to get promoted. They want to you know, get better career opportunities out of whatever is they're doing. So they're, they're going to tend to gravitate towards these easily measurable things that they can use to demonstrate progress. How do you change that? Right? Again, it doesn't seem satisfactory to say you should change the incentives so they're rewarded for producing good government in the target country 20 years down the road. Right, Their career will be over by the time we know, and we might never know if it was successful. So like, you see what I'm getting at. It may be an impossible question, but but how do you reconcile these, I think you made two observations which are totally correct, which is one is that this is a very long-term difficult process. And the other is we need to have some way to, to measure and reward progress on the dimensions that matter, not these other dimensions that are really, if not completely irrelevant, only very, very loosely relevant. So, so help me out here. Like how do we, how do we mm-hmm. approach this problem? I think in in some cases it's just you know it's not like we have to measure the um, use better indicators of progress. We're not talking about like measuring them over twenty years, but even let's have a change from measuring them over two years to measuring them over eight or ten. You know that would be that might be helpful. Um, but thinking of like what are those indicators of progress? There's, you know, there's a tendency to um, measure program effectiveness by, for instance, uh, you know, let's say you're training prosecutors. We'll, we'll hear, you know, 12 trainings were held over the course of, of three months and X number of people were in the room. And, well, did you talk to people before and after the training about how their views changed or how their knowledge changed? Did you check back in with them one year, two years, three years later to see if they were still using those principle, you know, knowing about those uh, legal precedents to prosecute cases using the elimination of violence against women law in their, in their prosecutions. And I think there are other, you know, rather than focusing on the quantification or the quantitative outputs, there can be a, a greater focus on like qualitative outcomes. The outputs versus outcomes is widely acknowledged as a um, just a weakness in some of our programming. And then if you couple that with a bit longer term view of what are the outcomes, let's check in on where are these, you know, where are those prosecutors today? Have they left the country or are they still working in the Afghan judicial system? And are they using some of the tools and trainings that we try to, to try to provide. I, I guess that's just one example of like looking qualitative, uh, you know, trying to build out our, under, our indicators to be more qualitative versus quantitative and looking at them over just a slightly longer time horizon. That makes a lot of sense. Although even extending to five or eight years rather than two years, part of me is wondering like eight years from now is whoever was responsible, the contractor responsible for running this training program, are they even going to still be there? Right. They may well have moved on to something else. May, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm asking an unfair question because it's just an intractable, intractable problem, but it does seem like a, a difficulty. Again, because everything you said before strikes me as completely right and true, um, but that does create this conundrum. Right, The things that we really want to measure are very difficult to measure, especially in the short term. 
but relying on these crude proxy measures that are more easy to measure in the short term may be deeply misleading. And I'm just not sure if there's a way out of that. Um, we're, we're, we're almost to the end of our time. You've already been very generous with your time, but I did want to ask uh, one more question or set of questions specifically about uh, CIGAR, the Special Inspector General's Office, and lessons, lessons learned from that process, because whereas that was what you were closest to. That was the organization you were working with. And maybe I can ask you to reflect on the experience of CIGAR and its effectiveness as an institution in both a positive and critical way. So if you were, you know, having, again, speaking only for yourself, having left the organization, if you were to reflect on what you think the real strengths of that organization were with respect to its institutional design and function, things that ought to serve as a model for organizations performing a similar kind of oversight, anti-fraud, anti-corruption function in other missions or maybe those run by other countries, that would be great. And maybe to complement that, if looking back, you can identify limitations, weaknesses, challenges, lessons that maybe you learned, not necessarily about Afghanistan directly, but lessons that maybe you learned about the design of these kinds of oversight institutions that one could carry forward into the future, that would be useful as well. Okay. I think as far as the, and again, with the caveat, speaking in my personal capacity, um, I think the qualities, the strengths for Cigar and what you know has enabled it to function so well is, of, cur- of course, first its independence, um, that it maintains, it's an, you know, its mandate is to look at the interagency effort. And actually that's another strength. Um, no other oversight agency um, and one of the reasons Cigar was designed as it was, um, no other oversight agency was looking at the whole of government effort, really. You know, this has been a, the, the reconstruction mission in Afghanistan has been shaped by the nature of its, you know, it's an interagency mission that we have, you know, it's not just DOD state and USAID, or of course the primary ones, but you've had Treasury, DOJ, I believe DHS at times, and uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and, you know, so many entities involved and CIGAR can look across the board at the complementarities or the gaps. And, you know, that's a key strength for it. Its independence enables it to, you know, frankly, speak truth to power and um, and be candid in its assessments. Um, all our lessons learned reports are public, by the way. And the, and the vast majority of the agency's audit reports are, are publicly available on our website. The other, the other strength has been, I think the, I mean, of course we've had congressional support for the mission and, you know, Congress appropriates our budget every year. So I think there's a, also a helpful kind of feedback loop between in terms of you know, Congress bringing these issues directly to members and their staff, and the IG has testified many times, and, and you know, there's a, a working relationship there that enables us to also respond to issues of concern to Congress. And then the cooperation with agencies, especially for the Lessons Learned program, because we had, had a bit of a, a bit more academic focus, you know, not a, not a focus on a particular program, but on this this whole a whole span of, of issues that the agencies could say, 
well, we're, yeah, we're concerned about this too. Um, can you, you know, here are some of our questions and our staff, you know, we had a team of four or five to throw at that topic for a year, which is something the agencies often don't have the time to do because they're engaged in the, putting out fires and the, you know, the incredibly complex process of the policymaking and, and execution. Can you describe any perhaps unexpected challenges or things about the uh, cigars mission or function that uh, you encountered that you know other people encountered that you would suggest that other people at agencies that are performing a similar kind of function, not necessarily in the US government, again, our listeners are, are global. So there may be other people in other contexts, whether it's in the context of a, of a foreign mission or just domestically, um, might want to know about based on your experience having worked with an auditing agency like this for so long. What might you highlight is this is a difficulty or challenge that you really need to take seriously. One thing that comes to mind is the is the overclassification of information, uh, and that was a a big issue um, for an issue of contention for the last few years, which is well covered in in Cigars Quarterly reports and, and the IG's comments, um, public comments, but there was a tendency over, especially over the last, say, four or five years for DOD to, uh, they began classifying uh, Afghan security forces casualties and, and, and also measures of district control by the government versus Taliban forces versus contested areas. And Cigar brought a lot of criticized that vocal, very vocally and and I think rightly so and it, but it gets to a big, bigger issue of that's germane to the whole you know to anti-corruption as well as just the issue of access to information and um, I think cigar helpfully you know brought a lot of attention to the fact that well if the if the American public doesn't you know these are these are kind of basic measures and information that, the American public should have access to in order to develop, you know, form an opinion on what our government, our government's involvement in Afghanistan. Terrific. That seems, again, like an important thing to, to keep in mind. So um, we, we've reached the end of our time. I want to thank you again uh, for your generosity, sharing your time and your experience and insights with me and with our, our listeners. So um, my name is Matthew Stevenson. My guest on this episode of Kickback has been Kate Bateman. Uh, currently a senior expert in the Afghanistan program at the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, but until very recently uh, with the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Kate, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast today and for talking with me. Thanks, Matthew. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Niels Köbis, and together with Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass, and Matthew Stevenson, I produce and co-host the podcast. Kickback is a collaboration between the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Anti-Corruption Blog. If you have ideas for future episodes, feedback, or anything alike, feel free to reach out. You can reach us either on Twitter, at kickbackgap or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Until next time.